Hello, friends. This is Steve. I am coming to you not live from one of our gatherings, but uh, from deep within our headquarters at the Discovery Downtown Center. Hey, as a mobile church, sometimes we have some technical difficulties with our recordings on Sunday morning, and we ran into uh, one of those this week. However, this conversation is a lot of fun and also really important for our community as we move forward. So I am uh, coming at at you again, not live, uh, but doing my best to recreate uh, the teaching from uh, Sunday morning so that we have it and can refer back to it from uh, time to time. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this recap of our teaching from November 10th, 2019. All right, to get us started, I want to invite you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as we begin, you know, this is the thing that we do every Sunday when we gather. Uh, someone gets up to give this teaching and, and it invites us to meet them somewhere within Scripture. And then we have this moment where we look it up in our Bibles or we we, we pass Bibles out and find this particular passage uh, and then we have a conversation about that passage of Scripture, and then we go and we think about it. Maybe we talk about it with our friends over lunch, or we process it further in our groups during the week. But we rarely pause and actually talk about what the Bible is. We have this uh, beautiful view of Scripture as God's Word, and it's so formative to us as followers of Jesus. And yet we very rarely talk about what the Bible actually is. And in a community like ours, there are going to be a lot of different perspectives on what Scripture is and what the Bible is. Many of us will come in uh, to a community like this with even some baggage around this. For some of us, we might resonate with this quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain, who had a lot of great quotes about Scripture, he says, the Bible has noble poetry in it. It has some good morals. It has a wealth of obscenity. And it has upwards of a thousand lies. For some of us, we come to Scripture with uh, this deep mistrust. How can this ancient text be reliable in any way? For others of us, the Bible is this spiritual comfort blanket. We look to it for inspiration, uh, some nice words to pump us up enough to get through another dreary day. And then for others of us, the Bible is simply a book of morals. It's almost like a code that we live by or that we use to hold other people accountable to try to keep people in line. Now, my hope here in this teaching, among other things, is to make the case that scripture uh, is none of those things that I just described. It's not a book of fables. It's not a source of spiritually sappy quotes. It is not a moral code. Rather, this is a book that is alive and on fire. This is a book that we don't just skim through. It's a book that we eat. To borrow words from the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 3.3, he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So we're going to spend some time now talking about what this thing called the Bible is. Now, the bigger context here is our fall conversation. The title of this series is Our Kind of Crazy, and we're looking at some of the things that make discovery distinct, the what 
and the why of our existence as a church. And we've been repeating over and over again our why. We exist to help people discover the good news of Jesus. And so our quest today is to then talk about what is the good news of the Bible. This, this book that we have that we believe to be God's word, what is the point of it as it forms us as followers of Jesus? I hope we see the good news of Scripture is that this is a, a, a book, a text, a love letter that fuels our mission. And so we're going to look a little bit at how that works. I want to begin with a statement about Scripture, just to help us create sort of a baseline uh, of operation when we approach this thing called the Bible. This statement comes from uh, the Lausanne movement, which is a global missions movement. If you're not familiar with it, do a little bit of research on it. It is a wonderful gift to the global church. People from over 150 different nations have spoken into this process of crafting doctrine that leads the global church further into mission. Here's their statement on scripture, on the Bible. We affirm the divine inspiration, truthfulness, and authority of both Old and New Testament scriptures in their entirety as the only written word of God. Without error in all that it affirms and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We also affirm the power of God's word to accomplish his purpose of salvation. The message of the Bible is addressed to all men and women, for God's revelation in Christ and in Scripture is unchangeable. Through it, the Holy Spirit still speaks today. He illumines the minds of God's people in every culture to perceive its truth freshly through their own eyes, and thus discloses to the whole church ever more of the many-colored wisdom of God. Now that statement is quite a mouthful. But there are three things. I want to boil this down to three aspects uh, of this affirmation that are so important for us as a community when we, uh, again, are creating a baseline of what is this thing called the Bible? What is this thing called Scripture? So first, in this statement, there is the affirmation that the Bible is God's word. Now, the Bible is this amazing thing. It's, it's not really a book in and of itself. It's a library of 66 different books written down by human beings over a period of a thousand years, people who are living in different cultures and speaking different languages. And yet the affirmation here is that the source of all of these books, this library, the source is God. Scripture is God's word to us, one of our baseline affirmations. Second, because it is from God, the Bible is trustworthy. And this, of course, gets into one of the big questions that people have about the Bible. And even going back to that quote from Mark Twain, what do we do with mistakes or perceived errors within Scripture? My biology teacher in high school loved to quote Jesus from Mark chapter 4, saying the smallest seed is the mustard seed. You guys remember this uh, this story that Jesus is telling? Hey, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like this tiny mustard seed that starts out small and grows much larger than that. Well, he'd point out this statement where Jesus says the smallest seed is the mustard seed. And then he would say, guess what? It's not even close to being the smallest seed. Look, the Bible is full of mistakes. 
you can't trust it. This is just one example, maybe a silly example, but again, a huge question for many, many people. When we talk about Scripture being trustworthy and accurate, we need to recognize at the same time that there is a scope to the questions that Scripture answers. The Bible is not a seed catalog. You can probably find a seed catalog very easily on campus over here at UC Davis. But the Bible is not designed to teach us about the size of seeds. And that's not even really the point that Jesus is making in that story, right? He's telling us something about the kingdom of heaven, what it's like, how it operates. He's not really even talking about the seed. The Bible is accurate and trustworthy in that it invites us into what is real and true about our universe. It tells us the true story of our world. It tells us the story of where we come from and why the world is the way it is. It tells us that the source of pain and suffering is our rejection of God, and it also tells us the story, the beautiful story of the solution to that problem. It tells us how the story will end, and it tells us about the God who is at the center of the whole thing, writing the story, crafting the story with loving attention and care. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is trustworthy. Now, the final affirmation here, the third affirmation is that the Bible is living and active. This is borrowing some language from Hebrews 4, verse 12. The Bible is living and active. This God, who is the author of creation and history, exists as three persons in one being. We've been referring to this over the past several weeks, the triune nature of God, three persons in one being, a perfect community of right relationships. Now, one of those persons is called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Bible and guides us into its truth. John 16, 13. There's a significant implication to this affirmation that the Bible is living and active. And that implication is that the Bible must be interpreted. Now, the good news here is that God's Spirit, again, the Holy Spirit, helps us in this task of interpretation. Now, the idea of interpreting Scripture can come with some baggage, depending on if we grew up in the church and what type of, of church we may have grown up in. We may have come from a tradition where things were said like this. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Or you may have heard a pastor say something like this. Oh, we just teach the Bible at this church. Now, those are wonderful sounding sentiments, but they are actually impossibilities. There is no approaching the Bible in a vacuum. We all have to interpret. And this is true of any kind of communication. If Scripture is God's Word, it is a communicative act. God speaking to us, and any kind of communication requires interpretation. I mean, just think about our digital world for a few moments. You probably even received a text message today, maybe even while you're listening uh, to this recording, where uh, you see something in there that makes you go, huh, I wonder what they meant by that. Why did they put that emoji in there at that point? Or what is that exclamation 
point mean? We're constantly interpreting different types of communication. I happen to use a lot of ellipses in my texting and emailing. For me, it's just how I string thoughts together. But uh, someone on our team was telling me that he interprets ellipses as anger or frustration. So imagine getting a text or an email from your pastor that's full of ellipses and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this person is so mad at me. But for me, I'm just I'm just processing. I'm just stringing my thoughts together. All communication requires interpretation. We are constantly interpreting the different messages that we receive. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about how we interpret scripture at Discovery, a model of sorts for us in just a moment. But first I, I got to tell you guys the story because I love this story so much. In the 1990s, Eugene Peterson published a translation of the Bible called The Message. Maybe you're familiar with this translation. Maybe you are not. But in the, again, in the 90s, it was kind of a moment uh, within church subculture when this thing came out. By the way, quick side note and advertisement. If you are not familiar with Eugene Peterson's writing in particular, get familiar with it. He's written a number of wonderful, wonderful books. I would recommend just about any of them. But in the 90s, gained some fame with this translation of the Bible called the message. Now, a lot of different opinions out there about this translation, but many of us don't know the story of where it comes from. The message translation of the Bible was born out of a study that Eugene Peterson was leading on the book of Galatians. For about 30 plus years, he was the pastor of a church in suburban Baltimore. And the way that their church functioned, they had a, a Sunday school time um, earlier on Sunday morning before their worship gathering. So he was leading that Sunday school time, and they were working their way through this, this book of Galatians, a New Testament letter written by a guy named Paul to this young church, probably one of the first things actually written in the New Testament. And here's Eugene Peterson sitting, you know, in this, this sort of old classroom, dingy church basement, whatever, with about 20 people, talking about Galatians, and, and, and people are struggling to get it and see what's going on there. People are falling asleep. Now, if you've read the book of Galatians, you might know that this book is electric. It's just full of this explosive truth of how free we are because of God's grace unleashed into the world through Jesus Christ, and people are falling asleep as they're considering the grace and freedom we have because of Jesus. And so Peterson is pulling his hair out, trying to figure out how can I get people more engaged with this study. So one day he sits down and he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to translate the passage that we'll be looking at on Sunday into words and language that I think people can understand. And so that's what he does. He just sits down, he translates the passage in, into words that he thinks, you know, late 80s suburban Baltimoreans would understand. And he brings it to them, and that next Sunday morning, it's just everything completely changed. It started to resonate with his group. Now, we might read the message today in 2019 and think that it is a bit corny, and that's fine. But in that context, at that time, it unlocked something for a lot of people. Why? Because we all have to interpret. Now the message has always gotten some flack for not being a literal 
translation, and I hate to break it to you guys, but there's no such thing as a literal translation. All translation involves interpretation. One of my all-time favorite quotes comes from an interview that Peterson did a, a number of years ago, and he was asked about some of that controversy surrounding the message, and, and in particular, the question was presented to him, how does the message compare to other English translations of the Bible? And his response was, I wouldn't know. I haven't read the Bible in English in 40 years. Now, if you don't get that joke, what he's saying is he's been reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew for the last 40 years. Uh, one of my favorite uh, pastoral sort of burn responses of all time. Haven't read the Bible in over 40 years in English. All right. All of this is background now to our conversation in 1 Corinthians. So the text we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 23. Let me read them now. Again, this is a guy named Paul, St. Paul, uh, that wrote the letter of Galatians, this time a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So, as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And then here comes the key uh, a couple of sentences. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. <clears throat> Over the past several weeks, if you've been tracking with our conversation, we've been talking about this guy, Paul, for uh, for a while. He's this massive figure in the New Testament story. He is uh, Jewish ethnically, was actually a part of the group called the Pharisees. And if you were around for our Matthew conversation, you know the Pharisees were deeply opposed to Jesus. But then Paul has this moment where Jesus interrupts his life and gives him a mission, a very specific mission. Paul, you are going to go to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people and communicate the good news to them. And Paul's an interesting choice for this because he is Jewish. He was very religiously Jewish, culturally Jewish, but then also was a Roman citizen. And this citizenship opened up things for Paul that maybe some other people wouldn't have had access to. He's a very unique character set up well to bridge these two worlds, Jew, non-Jew, Jew, and Gentile. What we see here in 1 Corinthians 9 is just how deeply committed Paul was to seeing the good news of Jesus move to the ends of the earth for disciples to be made of all nations. Now, one of the questions that comes up, particularly around this all things to all people statement, is, is Paul being manipulative? Is he trying to trick people? It almost feels like you know he's the, the slimy salesman doing whatever it takes to close the deal. I would argue, though, that Paul is living out what he wrote in that letter to the Galatians. Galatians 5.13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul is so committed to the mission 
that he's willing to say it's not about me. Paul loves people so much that he's willing to communicate the message to them uh, in whatever way possible. If he has to sit with people and drink some bad coffee, he'll drink it. If he has to listen to music he doesn't like, he'll do it. If he has to go to places that make him uncomfortable, he will go there all for the sake of reaching people with the good news of Jesus. And here is a major truth that we need to sit with. A, a, a big question for us as a community. Paul elevates the mission and the urgency of the mission over his own preferences. For Paul, this mission, getting the good news of Jesus out to as many people as possible, way more important to him than his opinions, his preferences, what's comfortable and familiar to him. And this is so important for us because oftentimes we elevate our preferences with the mission. The mission becomes sort of meeting our, uh, our, our preferences and desires. Or we just say, chuck the mission and put our preferences above everything else. But Paul elevates the urgency of the mission over his own preferences. In what ways do we get that backwards? Now, this elevation of the mission over everything else, it has very much uh, to do with how Paul handles Scripture, how he tells the story of Scripture, and it has lots of implications for how we, in turn, approach the Scripture today. So if you have your Bible with you as you're listening to this, let's move over to Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at how Paul does this in real life. In Acts chapter 13, Paul has begun traveling around to different parts of the Mediterranean, sharing the good news of Jesus with everyone that he can. And so here, in Acts 13, he arrives at a place called Pisidian Antioch. This is on the western side of modern-day Turkey. Verse 14 tells us it's the Sabbath and that Paul and his team have entered a synagogue. This is the author signaling to us that Paul has found the Jewish center of town. He's about a 17 and a half hour car ride away from Jerusalem, but he's found the Jewish center of town. There's a moment in their gathering where there's a, a, an invitation for anyone to get up and share a thought. Paul accepts this invitation and look at how he approaches this moment. This is Acts 13 verses 16 and 17. Fellow Israelites, he says, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. Now he's speaking to a mixed crowd, but a crowd that would have been very familiar with Jewish culture and the Old Testament story. And by the way, a crowd that's in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Look at how Paul communicates with them. He appeals to their identity. He goes in to their history. He begins to talk about slavery in Egypt and their wandering in the desert and finally arriving at the promised land. Then he goes into the era of kings. And it's here in the, the bit on kings that uh, Paul mentions Jesus for the first time. He begins to connect Jesus to David, the greatest of Israel's kings. And finally, he gets to the story of Jesus about verse 32 in Acts chapter 13, where he says, we tell you, notice this. We tell you the good news. Paul says, here's the gospel. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. 
So, for this Jewish audience, he appeals to their culture. He uses their history, their references. He quotes the Old Testament a variety of times to make his case. Jesus, guys, is the fulfillment of our history. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, uh, part of the lineage of David, the one who would come and, and restore our fortunes. The good news is that this Jesus died for us to forgive us of our sins, and God has raised him from the dead, overcoming the power of sin and death. Now, again, if you still have a Bible in front of you, flip over to Acts chapter 14. Here, Paul is in a different place. He's in a, a, a city called Lystra. This is about two and a half hours southeast of Antioch Pisidian, still in modern day Turkey. The mission is the, sh the same. They're out sharing the good news, but the setting is very different. No mention of the Sabbath, no synagogue in this story. They're just out on the street and, and Paul and his team encounter a man who is not able to walk. In fact, the, the, the text says he was not able to walk since he was born. They heal the man, and those who are around him, this primarily Greek crowd, goes nuts. They think that Paul and his partner Barnabas are gods. They think Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know that he had a little bit of a pride issue, and so I'm sure Paul is ticked that Barnabas gets to be Zeus. <laughs> but Paul responds to this by saying, hey, everybody calm down. We're just humans. We are not gods. And then look at what he says. This is Acts 14, verse 15. We are bringing you good news. Exact same word that he uses in Acts 13, verse 32. We are bringing you good news. But now watch what he says here. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Wow. This is a very different way of communicating the gospel, communicating the good news. Instead of the God of Israel, Paul talks about a living God. Instead of a long history lesson, he appeals to nature and creation. Instead of ethnic identity, he points to ways that God has demonstrated kindness to these people. And instead of quoting scripture, he speaks to their experiences. You grow crops and wait for rain and eat food and, and have joy when you get together. He speaks to their experiences. Now, if you keep reading, this scene gets weird. Paul gets stoned with rocks, and then he kind of gets up and walks away. And a few verses later on, we find out that there were people who responded to this good news. There are disciples in Lystra. And if you fast forward a couple of chapters, Lystra is where Timothy comes from. And if you refer back to last week's teaching where we looked at Paul and Timothy, you know that Timothy becomes Paul's apprentice. Paul passes the baton of his ministry onto this guy named Timothy, who is from this place called Lystra, where Paul gives this very different presentation of the gospel, the good news. Now, what do we make of this? What do we make of this? Here's where we need to have a moment of real talk. 
Paul's gospel presentation in Acts 14 would not pass muster in a lot of church circles today. If he gave that sermon in a lot of churches, there would be some serious grumbling. Where's the doctrine and the robust theological statements? Where's the scripture references? Where's Jesus? Where's the gospel? In these two scenes, we see Paul in real life being all things to all people. And here's the key. Paul is loving people enough to communicate the deep truth of Scripture to them in a way that they could comprehend and make sense of. We see Paul loving people enough to communicate the deep truth of Scripture to them in a way that they could comprehend and make sense of. It would not have been loving of Paul to simply repeat the Antioch sermon to these people in Lystra. And this is where, again, it gets real for us. A lot of Christians, in the U.S. in particular, have been conditioned to expect Acts 13 type teaching in church on a Sunday morning. And when they hear Acts 14 teaching, they freak out a little bit. Oh my goodness, this is watered down. It's not deep enough. There's not enough scripture, etc., etc. Now, I want to be very careful here. I'm not saying that Acts 14 is the model, the paradigm for all sermons everywhere uh, that you know someone gets up and gives a talk. <clears throat> That's not the point. We need, though, the point here is we need to pay very close attention to the thinking behind this. Back in our journey through Matthew earlier this year, we introduced the term orthokresis, which means right discernment. Here we see Paul using orthokresis, orthocreting for the sake of the gospel that some might be saved. He's discerning, and this is really important for us, he's discerning through the lens of the mission, elevating the mission above his preferences. What is going to help people discover the good news about Jesus? For us, more and more, the culture of our country, the culture of Davis, is Lystra, not Antioch. But our communication of the good news of Jesus is still way more Antioch than Lystra. Are you with me? So we need to change our communication. It's not the truth of Scripture that changes. It's not the story of Scripture that changes. But the way we tell the story has to change. This is the great task of orthokresis, the great task of interpretation, the living and active nature of Scripture. I want to close with two applications for us. One of the responses to our secularized post-Christian world has been to leave the Bible behind. Oh, it's outdated. It doesn't speak to us anymore. It's an ancient text that is not relevant in the 21st century. I hope that you see the issue is not that the Bible is no longer relevant. The issue is that our communication about the Bible is not relevant. Again, we are using too often Antioch methods to speak to a Lystra culture. And what that means is not that we need scripture less, it actually means we need it more. 
our example here, our inspiration here, comes from some of my heroes, the Bereans of Acts chapter 17. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The Bereans are noble, they are eager, they are opening scripture every day to examine it and to learn more. In the same way, we need to be deeply immersed in the story of scripture. We need, like Ezekiel, to eat this book, to get it inside of us, into our cells, into our souls. We need, this is the first application, to know the story. And we're going to do a lot more around this idea as we move forward. But one real practical thing for us right here is this. We've recently updated the reading plan on our app. So you go to the Discovery Christian Church app. There's a, a, a um, section in there on scripture. You can look up any passage of the Bible, but then there's also a reading plan. That plan is now a 180-day plan that's designed around the narrative arc of scripture, helping us become more familiar, more comfortable with the story of scripture. This is one of the lenses we use to think about how we read the Bible and interpret different passages of the Bible. But here's the thing, guys. Whatever approach you take, whether it's this big picture reading plan, whether it's Lectio Divina, something in between those two things, let's be eagerly opening our Bibles on a regular basis so that this good news gets inside of us and leads us to share it with others. We need to know the story. Second application, we also need to know the culture. And here, once again, our example is Paul, still in Acts chapter 17, Paul now in Athens. And what he does there is so fascinating. He spends some time walking around the city. He listens to the conversations. He notices what's going on there. He pays attention to the culture. And then when he has an opportunity to speak into the culture, he communicates the good news using their worship. Acts 17, verse 23. He quotes their poets and artists. Acts 17, 28. He talks about Jesus without ever mentioning him by name. Acts 17, 31. Paul pays attention to the culture and then he presents the good news to them using their cultural artifacts, questions, moments, artists, poets, all of these things, speaking it into their context. I want to give you three resources to help us know the culture. <clears throat> First resource is spend some time reading the local paper, the Davis Enterprise. Um, I mentioned this on Sunday. We'll say it again. Uh, another helpful thing can actually be spending some time on the Nextdoor app. Please don't spend too much time on there. It will suck you into a vortex of craziness, but it will give you at least some sense of some of the conversations that are going on here in our own community. Know what's going on in our city. Second, I would highly recommend the book Faith for Exiles by David Kinnaman. It's a, a Barna study book, a great tool for understanding where our culture is at this moment. Also a great tool because some of the things that he talks about um, in terms of uh, application on the back end uh, are going to be very relevant to where we are headed as a community in the new year.
Finally, I would also encourage you to check out the podcast, This Cultural Moment. If you are not a reader, this is just a wonderful conversation that offers some great insight into the deep trends in our world right now, this cultural moment. So know the story. Dig into the scripture. Eat it. Chew on it. Examine it. Allow it to examine you. Open it daily. Get the story inside of you. And then also know the culture. Every trend in our culture is an unknown God, to quote Paul in Acts chapter 17. It is a way that human beings are seeking the relationship that was lost in the garden. But the good news is, there is a way to connect with this God, this living God, the God of Israel, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This God has pursued us, has come after us, particularly in the person of Jesus, who lived with us, who died in our place, and who has overcome that separation that exists, that broken relationship between us and God through his death and his resurrection. And so we ended on Sunday in this place of communion, uh, yet another way in which we get the story into us. Communion, this moment that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, the lengths that God has gone through to be in right relationship with us. We celebrate that good news when we take communion and we share that good news when we know the story of Scripture and we know the culture well enough to speak good news into that culture. So, Discovery Christian Church, may we be bridge builders. May we be people who know the story of scripture so well, who understand what's going on in our culture and who can speak truth, love, life, grace, and peace into these deep questions that people have. May we speak good news into our community. Grace and peace, everyone. Thanks for listening.